Before David comes, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 3, Gospel of John, third chapter. A familiar passage that may come alive in a fresh way today for us. We're going to read the first 15 verses. If you would stand as the Word of God is read. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Maybe see it. You guys got me? They do. You guys are good. Look at that. Thank you so much for reading for me. So a couple weeks ago, I uh, was speaking at a church in Virginia. I don't usually do this, but uh, John and Debbie Flander have a pastor in their small group. He was going on vacation and he asked for somebody to come speak for him. Now, if you're Pastor Marlon or Pastor Lawrence, being up here is pretty comfortable. For everybody else, at least for me, there's a little bit of drama about speaking in front of everybody. And it was like that at this church. I was sitting in there and we were kind of counting down the service, waiting for your turn to go up there. Butterflies are building, <clears throat> getting a little bit nervous, and then it's my time. I take a big, deep breath, and as I start to get up, I felt my wife's reassuring hand on my forearm. Now, this is why you get married, to have somebody stand with you through thick and thin, be there for you, support you when you need it, better or worse, richer or poor, she's there with you, and to give you those encouraging words that I needed to hear That day, and she whispered in my ear and she said, don't trip. (laughs) True true story, true story. And and, and it was genius because as I started to go up there, I forgot about the sermon and I was worried about tripping. (laughs) True story. But, But then I thought, well, now, wait a minute. That's a pretty low bar for success. 
Is she saying that all I have to do is find my way up there, deliver a sermon, it doesn't matter what I say, and get back without tripping and we'll call that a win? I, that's pretty low bar. I like it. So, so if we can keep our expectations low, I'll, I'll do my best and then I'll try not to trip as I find my way back to my wife. But I don't know why she stepped back so far because that raises the risk. I grew up in California and when I was 14, I went to a party in the foothills. Uh, it was a house and there were a lot of uh, uh, older teens and, and there were younger teens, underage teens. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol there. My friend and I had the brilliant idea that we thought we'd take some LSD before we went to the party. And the drugs were starting, starting to take effect as I got there. Uh, so we were sitting in the living room and things were beginning to happen. And suddenly one of the older teens comes in and he does with both arms. He says, he said, run, cops. And he's motioned for us to, to leave. I could see the outside. I could see the, the patio. And I got up and I started to run with all my might trying to get there. My friend who had taken the LSD with me, he was faster and he ran in front of me, full blast, ran into and through a plate glass window. It seemed like, and probably was a drug, but it seemed like he was there for an eternity and then he crashed, he went through and I went out the side door and uh, there he was on the ground bleeding and the police were taking care of him. So I made my way down into the field, into the night and I escaped physically. But I can remember I was laying in bed that night and I was thinking, this is wrong. Something's wrong about this. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Our life, we can't live like this. I thought the parents and teachers are going to get together tomorrow and they're going to fix our life. I don't know why I thought teachers had so much authority, but I was only 14. All the parents and teachers are going to get together and they're going to fix our life. But nothing changed. I got up the next morning and we continued with our life as if nothing had ever happened. I couldn't tell everybody the anxiety that I had thought about the night before that nagging inner voice that this isn't fit, it's not right. I couldn't tell them that because I was worried about my reputation. Well, this morning we're not going to talk about a confused teen who uh, was worried about his reputation. We're going to talk about a good man. We're going to talk about a, a good man who couldn't make sense of the information that he had. He was trying to fit the pieces together and he couldn't fit them together, but yet he had this nagging question inside of him. Something wasn't right. A good man who was also thinking about his reputation. We're going to talk about Nicodemus and what I think is one of the most interesting conversations in the New Testament. It's a little bit of a technical conversation between two theologians. And uh, it's a little bit funny to Nicodemus as a teacher, but it's a little bit funny to talk about Jesus as a theologian because theology means study of God and Jesus is God. So he has a little bit of an advantage, but he also knows the question that's going on in Nicodemus' heart. And so Nicodemus is going to come to him. And, and uh, uh, so it's a little bit of a technical conversation. If it's too technical, by the time we get to the end, John 16. So if you have a red letter edition, you'll see the conversation goes down to 15. 16 is John's assessment, his summary. John 3:16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, is the summary of this passage. And so I don't want to get ahead of us uh, because I think there's stuff in 1 through 15 for us. So I'll walk us through there. And then I'll make two points. And I truly believe that three points are important for a sermon. But I also know another low bar, bar for sermons. Keep them short. So two points only. We'll see how we do. <clears throat> Before uh, I, we read the passage, I want to talk a little bit about the text itself. Why would John write this gospel? 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. They've already been out in circulation for many years. Most, if not all, of Paul's letters have already been written. They've already been out there for years. People know the basic storyline of the gospel. Why write his gospel? His gospel is definitely different. In fact, the three... Josh helped me write this sermon. Uh, if we, the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the, and I would ask him, he would say synoptic gospels because they're similar. This is different. So, for example, in John's gospel, no parables. Could you imagine a gospel with no parables? No parables. Not only that, they're dealing with miracles. So each of the other books, each of the other three, has at least 20 miracles. John only has seven. He doesn't even call them miracles. He calls them signs because they point to a deeper reality he's trying to reveal to us about who Jesus is. So, he tells us why he wrote it. Jesus performed many other signs, and this is in uh, uh, chapter 20, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, these seven signs and the stories around them, these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's an important term. We'll come back to the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his, name, in his name, you'll be able to participate in the life he brings. This is not the only difference. There are lots of other differences, too. One that is kind of key for us is in some of the others, Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's a lot of sermons. In John, there are a lot of individual conversations. Uh, he talks to Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the man born blind, uh, Martha at her brother's graveside. These individual conversations. But of all those, chapter 3 is one of the most interesting for us, I believe. It's the one we get the term born again from. Now, it doesn't start just in chapter 3. It starts in chapter 2. So, <clears throat> now, while he was in Jerusalem, while Jesus was there, uh, at the Passover festival, many uh, people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Another way of reading this is they trusted him, but he didn't trust them. And, of course, John, when he writes his gospel, throughout the gospel, he's got kind of this. He creates three categories for people. And this is consistent through his whole gospel. Three different buckets that he can put people in. One of them is people who don't believe. Other who have insufficient faith. That's these guys here. And the other ones are true believers. And because of the close proximity of the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and the similar language, we come to believe that Nicodemus is also one with insufficient faith. And in fact, Jesus tells them as much. And so this passage is important to us to understand what that faith should look like as they go through this conversation. Let's read the, uh, the first two verses. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you uh, are doing if God were not with him. And I'm asking you to think about a man who's older. He's probably a gifted teacher. We know by the time we get to chapter 19 that he's accumulated some wealth in his life. He's also part of this Jewish ruling council. This is the Sanhedrin. So the Romans allowed this governing body to exist to govern all things religious, uh, all things related to the temple, all things related to the law. There was this, this group of, of men and they were made up of experts of the law, priests, and even the high priest. Now, Nicodemus was not a priest or a high priest. He was an expert at the law. And he was very concerned about his reputation, but he had this nagging question inside of him. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Now, when John tells us he comes at night, it's not narrative color. He's not saying it was a dark and stormy night. He's saying he's coming under the cover of darkness because he's afraid. He doesn't want to lose his reputation. And he comes there to ask this, Jesus this question that's nagging him. Jesus' answer is kind of weird, I think. Watch this. 
And Jesus replied very truly. Now, if you have a King James Bible, if you remember, that's uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, it's the double amen. It's famous in John. He uses it over and over again. If you've got another translation, it might be truly, truly. It just means really, really important. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I'm Nicodemus, and I'm going, that's out of left field. I came to talk to you about these miracles you're doing, and you're all this born again stuff. I don't know what that's all about. Where do you get that? That's exactly the question that was on Nicodemus's heart. Because he knows of the promise that was given to David, that a king would come and sit on his throne forever, and he would bring a new reality, a new life, a new creation. And he looks at Jesus, and he goes... I'm not, I'm not feeling it. You don't look like that guy. And, and where's your kingdom? Like a couple of guys here. And yet, there's that nagging inner voice. And Jesus is essentially saying it's not that kind of kingdom. In fact, if you want to participate in this new kingdom, if you want to participate in this new reality, you're going to have to be new yourself. You're going to have to be born again. If you might have some of your translations have born from above, born from again, born from above, different translations translated. Most people think John is being clever because he chooses a word that could be used for either. And, of course, if you are born from above, then you are born again. So it doesn't really matter. The word that's important to us here is born. This is a generated life. In other words, what that means is, is you can't enter this new kingdom by studying real hard. If I study real hard, I have this breakthrough. I'll get it. You can't get into this, this kingdom, this new reality, if you get the most votes. You can't get into this new kingdom, this new reality, this new creation, if you're good. It's not achieved. It's generated. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb uh, to be born. And Jesus answered. This is the double amen. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see, uh, can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but uh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is, is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, I have to make a comment about chapter five, or verse 5. It talks about the water. It's really not important to what we're doing, uh, so we can't take the time to unpack that. But let me give you three of the top proposals. One of them thinks that this uh, water is Christian baptism. That's unlikely because at this point in history, Christian baptism really hasn't taken off. And we wouldn't expect Nicodemus to know anything about that anyway. Some think it's John's baptism. That doesn't make any sense because that means John's baptism would be required for salvation. And, and there's nothing in the New Testament that even suggests that. Others believe it's the amniotic fluid of the physical birth that Nicodemus is confused about. But these scholars, New Testament scholars, say it's actually not two things it's one thing with two descriptors. And so they look at a passage in the Old Testament for this. And most of them look at Ezekiel 36, which we'll, we'll look at uh, in my second point of the sermon. But Ezekiel 36 said that there will come a time when we will be cleansed and we, our hearts will re be renewed by the Spirit. And this cleansing metaphor of water is used. We'll look at that again in point number two. But that, that doesn't really matter. Because for us, the most important thing is the Spirit. That this generated life... It's a miracle. It comes from God. It's generated by the Spirit. Now, it's interesting because when I read that last verse there, I always think there's this one song that this Christian band did. And if you know which one I'm talking about, see me after. But uh, that it was a really popular song and they were singing this song. And then they had this little recording of one of Billy Graham's sermons. And he says, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And I always, when I see it, I say, you can't see the wind, 
but you can see the effects of the wind. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This new birth you can't see, but you can see the effects of the new birth. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, and uh, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. And this is why they think it points to an Old Testament passage, because he's expected to know. You call yourself a teacher. You're an Old Testament teacher. You should know these things. Why don't you know this? In other words, this is a passage in the Old Testament that somebody who's an expert at the law should understand. He should be looking for this. He should be looking for this Jesus event. And he tells them as much. We'll look at a couple of these passages. Um, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. This is essentially not important to what we're talking about. It's essentially a, a comment about credibility. Nicodemus is thinking about the miracles, and Jesus says, I have greater credibility than that. I have firsthand knowledge. I came from heaven. But the most important passage for us, I think, is the next two verses. Uh, just as Moses lifted up. So before I read that, if you were to ask John, if you said, John, I really want to participate in this new life. How do I do that? He would say, only believe. This is why we give the gospel of John out to everybody, all new converts, all new believers, because it's believe, 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 believe. But believe what? And here Jesus is telling Nicodemus that Jesus is that object of faith. Listen to this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. There's a passage in uh, Numbers where the children of Israel, had uh, they were rebelling against God and rebelling against Moses, and so he sends these snakes, poisonous serpents, snakes into the camp. And people were bitten and they were dying. They came to the conclusion that it's probably not a good idea to rebel against God, not our finest hour. So they repent and they say, Moses, will you pray for us? And Moses prays for them and God says, okay, uh, construct a snake, construct a serpent, an artifact and put it on a pole. And then all who are bitten, if they look, they'll live. Sounds like a good sermon title, look and live, right? And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Just as those people look to the snake for physical life, you need to look to me for this new life. It's hard for us at this point in history to understand how radical this is because Nicodemus has already stipulated, he's already agreed that this guy is teaching God's word. We know that you're teaching God's word and and the things that you're teaching, we should believe in those things. He's already agreed to that. And Jesus says, no, I am the object of that faith. Which leads me to my first point. The new birth is not what you think. Or a better way of saying it is not just about what you think. I remember... When Kathy and I first moved here, the Jehovah's Witness came to our house, and they wanted to study. And um, I said, yeah, sure, come on in. And, and uh, they're very focused on specific verses that are going to challenge what we believe about the nature of Christ and promotes their false doctrine. And uh, they're very good in those little verses, but they don't understand the whole Bible. Very weak in the Old Testament. I said, yeah, sure, come on in. And after four weeks, they said, you know, we're not going to come back anymore. And I said, yeah, yeah, you guys... It's okay. We know there hasn't been any contentious arguments, no raising of voices, no name calling. We put out beverages. We loved on these guys. No, we could continue discussing. And they said, no, we're good. We don't think we'll be back. What always shocked me about these guys is that they're very focused on these little verses and they can't see the whole Bible. This is the can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing, because we're asked to orient our life around Jesus Christ in the same way the Old Testament 
people are asked to orient their, their lives around God. We're asked to trust Christ. They're asked to trust God. Let me uh, explain it this way. Uh, we think about idolatry sometimes, and I think we think about it wrongly, but, uh, but I, I think sometimes. Anyway, it goes something like this. Things we love more than we love God. I, I love skiing so much. Uh, I love skiing more than I love God, so it's my idol. I love baseball so much. Uh, I love my family so much. I love my family more than God, so that must be my idol. No, maybe, maybe not. Most of the time when we see idolatry in the Old Testament, it's the Israelites investing their trust, investing their confidence for their well-being, for their health, for their crops, in some inanimate object that they built. God even mocks them. He makes it pretty, actually pretty funny. He goes, oh, you guys are so cute. You're carrying your God around. Shouldn't it be the other way? Shouldn't he be carrying you? Or, or oh, you're taking care of your God. Oh, wait a minute. Shouldn't he be taking care of you? This inanimate object has no power. And God says, no, I have the power to take care of you. You need to put your trust in me. You need to put your confidence in me. You need to pledge your allegiance to me. They said the same thing about Jesus in the New Testament, that we're to trust in him, that we're going to put, put our confidence in him. That's a huge miss. How did you miss? How did you read the Bible and miss that one? There's some other misses that can happen, and perhaps we could miss some things in this passage here about belief. So Nicodemus has insufficient faith. What does he believe? I, I often think if my brother would only believe in God. I'm here to tell you, Nicodemus believed in God. He believed in God with conviction. He not only believed, he didn't believe in uh, uh, some nebulous, fuzzy notion of a supreme being. He believed in the same God that we believed in. He believed in, in the Old Testament promises that a king would come. He believed that, that Jesus was actually from God and the things that Jesus taught were, uh, were truth. And John said that wasn't sufficient. And sometimes I think that we kind of use the English meaning of believe and we look at the New Testament when it talks about belief and we think about agreeing to a set of facts or you can believe anything as long as you believe or you have to believe these things. But for John, he seems to suggest that belief is commitment to a person, Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we look at what sufficient faith might look like, it at least has to include putting our trust and our confidence in Jesus Christ. But that's just the beginning, which leads me to my next point. The new birth is not the end. I remember one time I was teaching on um, rewards in the judgment seat of Christ. And somebody in our study group said, I don't care about no rewards or crowns. I just want to get in. Uh, that sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? I just want to get into It misses the point. Let me illustrate it this way. So imagine you're a college football player. We're talking about that. College football player. You played four years. And now today is the NFL draft. We're so excited. People are going to name going to be called. They're going to be drafted. You're in the NFL draft. And somebody says to you, who do you want to play for? And you say, oh, I'm not interested in playing. I just want to be drafted. That's dumb, right? It's broken. And you think, no, no, no. The whole point of being drafted in the NFL is to play in the NFL. In the same way, the whole point of the new birth is the new life. And that's what this passage is talking about when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and said, you should know this. So let's look at a couple of verses here. Now, this verse here, I believe, should be one of the most important verses in the Old Testament for us. Uh, it's quoted twice in the book of Hebrews. Jesus referenced it in the, uh, in the Last Supper. We kind of reference it when we do the Lord's Supper here. It actually is where we get the name New Testament from, Old Testament, New Testament. It actually comes from this passage. It's pretty important. 
And Jeremiah is saying, a coming day. There's going to come a day. And Nicodemus, you should know this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That's where they get New Testament from. Well, I'll make a new covenant with this people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Now, there's some important stuff here. First, it's the New Covenant, which is where the New Testament comes from. But listen to the nature of how this covenant relationship is described. It's the husband and wife. It's this relational covenant. It, it, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'm with you. You're with me. We're together. It's not this casual thing. There's a relationship that's there. And while forgiveness is important and is referenced here and referenced in the next passage, so is transformation. I will put my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. There's a coming time when there'll be a transformation. We will be different. Ezekiel says the same kind of thing, used a little bit different language. The longer passage, we'll pick three verses from here. And this is the one I was talking about, about the water. And Ezekiel is saying, uh, a time is coming. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from, your, uh, from all your impurities and from your idols. There's the forgiveness. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. you will, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Changing your heart. Next verse, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow me, to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. I'm going to change your heart. You're going to love me. Both these passages together tell of a coming time that God will change our hearts and cause us to love him, cause us to follow him, help us to love him and follow him. I used to think this was like a light switch that you turned on and off. Someday in the future it's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. Uh, you know, this is maybe one of those uh, things that the pastors talk about when they talk about the already not yet stuff. You know, this is this is some time in the future. Paul disagrees. If you remember uh, the, what we talked about earlier this year when in Second Corinthians, Paul is justifying his ministry. And he says, your changed lives are proof of my ministry. And then he quotes these verses. He says, this has already happened. And your changed hearts. That's evidence of my ministry. Listen to Second uh, Corinthians and look at the Old Testament echoes here. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. So your changed lives, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. Skip down to verse six. He has made us competent, uh, competent as ministers of a new covenant. Jeremiah's reference there, not of the letter. But of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so he says, it's not like a light switch. It's actually like a dimmer switch that from the day we came to Christ, God has been transforming us, imparting the new life, changing us, conforming us to his image every single day. He talks about it also in the book of Galatians. I'll put a plug in for uh, Nathan's class. When you think about the book of Galatians, uh, it, it is the faith and works, but it's also a spirit versus law. And in fact, the, the, it says in chapter five that the spirit makes the law obsolete. And he's talking about the, the uh, fruit of the spirit. And he gives two lists. 
He said, here's the things you shouldn't do. Don't do these things. Here's the things you shouldn't do. You would expect the next list to say, here are the things you should do, but it doesn't. Here are the things you shouldn't do. And then it says, here's what the Spirit is doing in you. I can almost hear Billy Graham saying, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. The new life working out in us. Okay, so I've been working pretty hard to get a very simple point across. This is the time when my wife would say, well, you should just give him the simple point. We wouldn't have to sit through this whole thing. <clears throat> but there is some expectation that there's a sermon here. But the simple point is this. The new birth is a spiritual birth. But it's the beginning of a spiritual life. That's the expectation. I'll close with this. Um, I was uh, <clears throat> that guy who took the LSD. When he got to be 19, um, he dropped out of high school. Um, I was working at the Green Giant Can Factory in Savage, Minnesota, and one summer night, one colleague came up to me and he told me that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Think about this. I lived in the United States and I didn't know Jesus died for me. I knew Jesus died. Everybody knows that. But I didn't know he died for me. I went out to my workstation and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I came and found my uh, work colleague and I said, what's next? Instinctively, I knew this was the beginning of a journey. And two years later, I found myself in Bible college. And uh, we were expected to share our faith. We were expected to share the gospel, the good news. That's what gospel is. We were expected. Actually, we weren't expected. We were required. They gave us demerits if we didn't do it. A little legalistic, but, but we went out every week and knocked on doors to share the good news. And I can remember I was talking to this one guy. I knocked on the door and um, came to the door and I said, um, I should recognize this. I said, uh, um, yeah, do you know you're a sinner? Romans 3.23, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then I said, oh, but uh, the penalty of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But God loved us so much that Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. I could see those who know the Romans road there, they're smiling. 10.13, whoever calls upon the name will be saved. And I said, do you believe these things? And I led him in a prayer uh, to accept Christ into his heart. He said, thank you, and closed the door. That was it. There was no what's next. There was no beginning of the journey. And I, I, I thought to myself, I said, okay, maybe I, ma'am, I'm not doing this right. Sometimes I think if I focus so much on the penalty that that seems like the end game. And, and that, that's game over. You know, once you're freed from the penalty of sin, all's over. It's done. I'm here to tell you, the, the, the dealing with the sin is not the end goal. It's only the, it's only the means. The end goal is life with God. And, and, and so I thought, maybe I'm focusing too much on the penalty, or maybe it's what you believe. Do you believe these things? It's cognitive. If you can believe these kinds of things, maybe I'm not allowing them to recognize they need to make a commitment uh, to, to, to Christ. I wonder how John would do it. I wonder if John would go like this, if he, if he came up to me and he said, hey, Fowler, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm sharing the good news. <laughs> oh, you are? <laughs> is that what that is? Um, what would John do? And uh, I think we were talking about that. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. These signs, these stories, these things that I wrote are written for a purpose. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Messiah or Christ just means anointed. But, but he's not saying that. He's saying the anointed, the expected king, that he is that guy. Son of God, we think uh, as, you know, as 
at this point in history, we might see that as Trinitarian Father, Son, and uh, the Holy Spirit. And I think after the first century, they probably did. But during this time period, that was a term that was used to designate Israel royalty. As a matter of fact, when, when uh, 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 Nathaniel is introduced to the Messiah and he has a conversation with Jesus and he's convinced of it, he said, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. He didn't know anything about the Trinity. But David was called the Son of God and Solomon was called the Son of God as representatives of God to Israel. And in the Davidic covenant, in the promise of David, God says, he will be like a son to me and I will be like a father to him. John wants us to see that. So what is John saying here? I think he might be saying something like this. You know that guy who is coming, who's going to bring the new kingdom, who's going to bring a new reality, who's going to bring a new world. That's Jesus. He's the guy. He really is the guy. I'm not kidding you. He's going to make all things new and he wants to make you new. He's bringing a new creation and he wants you to be a part of it. And then I think John would, would think, if we believe that, that we'd say, well, if that's true, I'm all in. If that's true, I want some of that. If that's true, I pledge my allegiance to the king. Maybe that's what John is thinking. We go through these 15 uh, verses, and, uh, and maybe it is a little bit technical. Maybe I made it more technical than it needed to be. Um, but then, 3.16, John summarizes. For whosoever believes, for, 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 God, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, here's the thing. He's not talking about more of the same life. He's talking about more of a better life. He's not just talking about quantity. He's also talking about quantity. He describes this new life, this special life for us in John 10.10. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That was the purpose. The new life. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Listen to this. I came so they can have real and eternal life. More and better than they ever dreamed of. A new birth. And a new life. More than we ever dreamed of. That's good news worth sharing. That's good news worth living. Now I'll stop right there. And I'll invite Amanda and the team up here. And I'll pray for us while they come up and, and lead us in some singing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new birth and the new life. And Lord, may we lean into that new life that you've provided for us. Amen and amen.